You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Easter, happy Passover, happy Ramadan. It's the uh, trifecta of holidays. Doesn't happen very often. I hope you had a good Easter weekend. Some of you are still off. Kids are still off school. Government workers, are they off? We're not off. We're all working. You're working. But if you're not, hello. I hope you had a good Easter, a good Passover, a good Ramadan, whatever you're doing. Maybe you're just, just, just hanging out. In the U.S., for example, church attendance is like only 41%. So, so, so religiosity is actually falling. Nonetheless, I celebrated Easter with my wife's family Friday night. We drove to Toronto. We had... Uh, Easter with the Quins, it was fantastic. There was just a feeling of love in the air, partly because we're all, even though everyone's concerned about COVID still, like it's there, didn't matter. People were just so happy to be together. Uh, We're a super tight family. She's from a really tight family. And then on Saturday, we did the Seder with uh, my family at my sister's place. Um, and her husband, they just put on a fantastic Seder for like 35 people. They had this huge long Seder table. My brother was there. My mom was there and lots of cousins were there. Um, it was the first Seder without my father and my, my wife's lost both her parents. And, and, and so it was hard. It was hard to be candid. So midway through the Seder and our Seders are very vibrant. If you've never been to a Seder, you know, you read like it's a hard sell because there's a big dinner, but you got to read basically for about an hour before. So everyone sits at the table and then you basically tell the story of Passover and, you know, Pharaoh and the uh, Moses and the liberation from from slavery. And it's beautiful because it's the really the only celebration uh, religiously of of freedom from slavery and then the youngest kids have to ask the four questions. And the four questions are, you know, why is this night different than all other nights? Why do we eat matzah? And why do we eat bitter herbs? And Which is lovely to me because, you know, the adults have spent days on this elaborate religious feast. And then the train kind of stops as the most vulnerable young people. This is part of the book. Say, why are we doing this? Like, what's up? And it's kind of this installation of curiosity and questioning. Uh, and then the, the adults are obliged to tell the story. So the kids are kind of the most vulnerable people are in control, which is kind of a metaphor about freedom from slavery. It's not the master who's in control. The master has lost their soul because they have enslaved someone. It is the vulnerable who are those you listen to. So it's, I, I love it. It's a beautiful holiday, but it's also, you know, we act it out and there's costumes and, and, and it's, it's, frankly, a bit of mayhem, but it's great. A lot of singing. And so we had two great holidays. And But it was hard to be without your loved one for the first time. And, and I was definitely feeling that. And I don't know what it's like for all of you if you've lost someone. That first year where you're celebrating Christmas or Easter or Passover or Hanukkah or Ramadan or whatever you're celebrating... Um, and, and, and when I'm down a bit, I'm going to do this. I don't know. I wasn't going to do this today, but I'm going to, we got a great show for you, but can I, can I do something? What the hell? I'm going to just do this because we talk every day and I'm just not going to fake it. I'm not going to pretend it was tough. So I missed my dad. And so at five thirty this morning, I got up 
because I can't sleep, as you know. And I was just thinking about my dad. And, and even though it was a beautiful holiday, we had driven back to Ottawa. When I'm feeling like this, and I sometimes go to this poet, Mary Oliver. She's a great poet. I'm going to read a small poem. Like, I'm probably the only guy on a talk show today that's going to read a poem, but screw it. I'm going to do it. Uh, and I sent this to my mom this morning. I actually sent it to my wife as well. But I just said, this is what I'm thinking about today. And, and, and this is how I feel. And I know we're going to talk about Ukraine. And, and, and we talked a lot about Ukraine and the devastation that the people in Ukraine are feeling. And they are losing loved ones every day. And the Russians are devastating it. And, and, and Putin has attacked Lviv and Kharkiv and Dnipro and Mariupol and, and, and in the east. And, and what the, the, the incredible Ukrainians are going through, we're going to talk about it today, as we do every day. It is heartbreaking. And so whatever we're going through, you know, oh, I miss my loved one. Think about what the Ukrainian people are going through as the war continues to devastate their lives. And I think about it every day, as you do, because we're talking to people in Ukraine every day. And so I'm going to read you this poem because it, I was just thinking about the world that is in so much agony. And, and sometimes the world is is suffering on the big picture, but also in the kind of personal picture. So this is, I'm just, I'm going to open the door and and this is Mary Oliver's Don't Hesitate. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate, give into it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise and not very often kind and much can never be redeemed. Still, life has some possibility left. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back, that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or the power in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. So I read that this morning. Don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. And I just thought of that. To lift some people up and to lift us all up in a world that here we are on an Easter Monday. And I just thought this is a day that to let's talk with our minds and do our normal debates. But let's lead with our hearts a bit uh, on a day like that. So I was talking to Samantha, our producer, our wonderful producer, Samantha Pope, this morning. And I said, how was your weekend, Sam? And she said to me, as we exchanged stories, you know, Ev, I had a quarter-life crisis. Samantha's 22. And I said, Sam, what do you mean you had a quarter-life crisis? What happened? She said, you know, I was thinking about, with my parents, about how expensive the world is, how I'll never be able to afford a house, how... I want to one day have a family and I'd like to have children and I'd like to put them in sports the way I grew up. Sam played a lot of sports. Bam, bam, Sam from, from ringette. But I don't know how, what it will take to do it. If I'll ever be able to do it. And I love my job, but I don't know if I can afford it. Maybe I have to try to find a job that will pay more money. Cause it just seems like things are crazy. And in fact, there's a survey this morning for MNP. That says, get this, 49% of Canadians 
say they're within $200 of not being able to pay the bills. In 56%, uh, uh, one third of Canadians aren't pulling in enough income to cover basic monthly experience. Can you imagine 31% of Canadians don't earn enough to pay their bills? This is really big. Half of respondents say they are within 200 bucks of insolvency. This is a survey of 2,000 Canadian adults from Ipsos uh, for MNP from March 9th to the 15th, one week after the Bank of Canada raised its rates, right? So people are feeling it. And 52% say they're already feeling the higher rates. And so you got to wonder, Samantha's as a young person, a Gen Zer technically, but millennials are this, you know, which is about twenty six and over. People are feeling, will I ever be able to buy a home? Now I know the Liberals are trying to deal with this with their tax free first time home savings account, which doubles, you know, and the doubling of the first time home buyers tax credit. And I know there's they're they're banning foreign buyers and taxing property flippers. All that we know might be good, but it, at the margins, it's going to make it's not going to lower house prices. High interest rates will. But I wanted to ask you then, coming up, the question that Samantha asks, what salary do you think you need to live the life you want? Not, I'm not talking about like, oh, I need to buy a Ferrari. Like, what is the salary you think you need? Are you considering leaving your job that you like for better pay? And do you think you'll be worse off than your parents? Like, I just want to get, I want to dig into Sam's quarter life crisis. one 855 As the story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. So uh, our great producer, Samantha, has a quarter-life crisis that basically the country's having, which is, am I ever going to be able to afford a house? 31% of Canadians say they don't have enough to pay their bills, according to a new Ipsos survey done for MNP. 31%. Unbelievable. Things are expensive. Now, I'm going to ask you some questions, but a lot of there, there's a counterpoint here that, that people are good to raise. But what is the salary you need to live the life you want? Are you considering leaving the job, the field that you love or not? One eight five five six three three ten ten. Like, are you going to switch jobs because you can't afford the life you want? Like the job you like, Samantha's like, I don't know. Is this? Do I have to like? I don't know. Go into finance to afford my life? Do you think you have it worse off than your parents? One eight five five six three three ten ten, or seven ten ten. Hi, Evan, I'm 25. I have a university degree. I don't feel I'll ever get a job that pays for the simple life my parents had. People say there are so many jobs available. Forget to qualify that point by including there are many minimum wage jobs. I thought getting a degree would push me past that. It hasn't. If I wanted to work in aerospace like my father, I'd have to go to school for six more years. My father got it with a high school degree. I feel hopeless. Feeling hopeless is 
is a very, very dangerous thing. I feel for you. I wish you'd sign your name. You might have to go to school in aerospace now. It's more competitive. You're right. I mean, if I could earn the median salary in Canada, I'd have a salary I need to survive and even raise one kid. I'd have to adopt two kids and I'd need another 20K. Uh, I'm currently at 23K a year. Median's like, yeah, the median salary is like 60 to 75. Household, by the way. Evan, I can't even afford rent on minimum wage full-time. No debts. Life sucks. Evan, I work in security. I make 18 bucks, 64 cents an hour. If I work full-time, 40 hours a week, one full paycheck goes to rent. I figure I need to make $35 an hour or 40 to 50 grand to live comfortably. Vass, you're not wrong, Vass. It is bloody expensive out there. And people just want a simple... And then Samantha's like, maybe I have to move to a small town. Like, maybe I can't afford to live in a city. People are having, she's 22, she's, she's graduated top in her class, and she's having that fear. Evan and I do delivery driving. People are shopping at record levels. Malls are packed. Amazon deliveries everywhere I go. When I've delivered at Bayshore, I can barely get a parking garage. People seem addicted to shopping, says Scott. But then you got Andrew Coyne said, well, wait a second. I know housing is, is a big issue, millennials. I'm reading from Andrew Coyne in The Globe. But he has a, a, a 2019 economic well-being study across the generations. Are millennials better or worse off by two stats Canada economists? And he, I'm going to read from Coin. He said, hey, millennials, these are people in your sort of 26 and up. Hey, millennials, the generation now in their 30s and late 20s had one-third higher medium income and two-third higher median net worth, both in inflation-adjusted dollars and Gen Xers did, who in turn were better off than the baby boomers. I mean, this is Andrew Coyne. To be sure, millennials have taken on higher levels of debt than previous generations, but why shouldn't they? They're paying a fraction of the interest rates their parents did. Overall, millennials are likely as likely to own their own home, 51%, as Generation Xers were at their rate, and only slightly less than the baby boomers, who are 55%. So that's what Andrew Coyne argues. Hey, actually, the housing prices are higher prices, but lower interest rate. So it's not that bad. Nicholas, what's your what's your take? Yeah. Hi, Evans. How you doing? I'm great. Well, what's your view great. on this? So listen, uh, the problem here is very simple. You know, my, my parents had nothing. Uh, they came from uh, Europe after World War Two and they built a family and they had uh, everything they needed. Today's society is a little different because because we, we we need to buy things that we don't need. Today's society, you got two cars, you got a big house, which you don't need to spend $2 million. You could buy a house easily, a triplex here in Montreal for $600,000. You got iPads, you got iPhones, you got this. Guess what? You're running after technology. That's what you're paying for. Yeah, I, that's, I, that's I, I don't think... I don't, so you're saying that the problem is young people have too many... Uh, desires and needs that they don't have. They have uh, too many options. I, Nicholas, I appreciate that. First of all, $600,000 is a lot of money. I mean, that's a, you call that a simple, but 600000 bucks if you want to buy a home, is still real money. The average house price in Canada, by the way, is 800000 So that's real. Uh, Sonny, what's your take? I, I agree 100% with the previous caller. But I want to make this point. All these people that are complaining about interest rates, and even what you are saying, 600 is a lot of money. 30 years ago, 
when people were paying 24% interest rate for a mortgage in this town. A $100,000 house was expensive, mm. or $150,000, even less than that. $100,000 house was expensive. So because what, you're paying 18% interest. When? 24%, my friend. 24%. So what we got to think about is what that gentleman just told you now. The people that are complaining at the moment, like you say, uh, your uh, producer, she's 22 years old. Look at the age of 22, how many people owned a house 30 years ago of their own at her age. She doesn't want a house. I'm not going to run her down. They're worried they'll never be able to afford it. That's their worry. No, that their salaries never. The salaries are not keeping up. The wages are not keeping up with the house prices. And and and, and uh, Sonny, I appreciate the call. And and you know, look, Sonny's not wrong. There's going to be a generation that's going to call in and say our houses were cheaper, but we were paying 12, 13, 20% interest. You're paying 2, 3, 4, 5% interest. So you want high house prices, low interest rates, or high, high interest rates and lower house prices. You know, pick your poison. But wages have not kept up with inflation. Um, Reed, you're a millennial. What's your take on all this? Uh, hi there, Evan. Big fan. How are you? Hey, good, man. I love having you on the show. What's your take? Uh, my take is, uh, I'll first explain my situation. I'm 31. Um, I lived with my parents up until last year, so I was 30. And my partner and I were able to uh, get a house out here in Palmerston, very small town. We had to sort of, uh, you know, make make some arrangements in order to afford it. But we were able to. But we really had to deal with you know, expectations and sort of the, uh, the change in the paradigm that maybe the generation before us had, where the you're not going to get a house for the same price. I mean, inflation aside, it's just like it's... It, I've even done the calculations. Um, inflation doesn't account for everything. But you yeah. really have to just understand the difference in the times, and you're not going to be able to you know, afford the dream house or even the first house and have kids before 30. Um, and to the caller you had a little while ago, um, I was so fortunate as to live with my parents, and I was able to go to college and advance my education a little bit uh, while I wasn't paying rent with them. So do whatever you can to give yourself an edge in the job market while you don't have that overhead cost. Yeah, by the way, are you planning to start a family? Uh, at some point, once uh, again, once I get that raise. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have a target salary? I'm, I'm just, uh, if you don't mind, like, like Reed, you don't have to tell me. But, I mean, is there something that you'd say, you know, we could live in this smaller community uh, and, and we could raise a family if we had a combined household income of X? What? Uh, so my, my partner and I were looking at about uh, combined income of 120000 a year. Um, but there's other considerations. I work remotely full-time 100% of the time. I don't have to commute. I'm super fortunate to have nice. that in my life. So uh, if I were to change jobs, commuting would be a concern. So I'm willing. To, would I be willing to take maybe like a couple grand off the, what I'm currently making and have huh. to commute? It's a trade-off, right? Yeah, it's a trade-off. But, By the uh, way, really so you're like listening to us on, the, on your computer, not in your car. I love it. Um, I'm actually, no, I dialed while I'm in the car. I'm just sitting in my driveway. Right, <laughs> nice. Well, stay up. Here's what I'll do, Reed. First of all, thanks for doing that. I really, I want to hear from more people. I think this is the topic. I think Samantha's on to something. Is it, and I don't want to start a generational war, like whining younger people. Oh, I worked hard, older people, or, or older people entitled versus people who are being exploited. But I do want to hear about this cost of living. one 1010 and 71010. Let's keep it going. 
Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Uh, welcome back to the show. This topic is blowing up and we're going to keep going, which is affordability. Is this the biggest issue? I told you that Samantha Pope, our producer, 22 years old, basically she and her friends are concerned. They're worried that they will not have the same good fortune and quality of life that their parents had. They will never be able to afford a house. Their salaries will never catch up to the uh, prices out there. They got to think maybe I need a new job. What is the salary you need to live the life you want? How concerned are you? Now, I'm getting a lot of generational things. Like people said, when I grew up, I paid 12%. When I bought a house, it was like 18% mortgage. House prices were lower, but mortgage rates were way higher. Now you've got tiny mortgage rates and you've got low unemployment. So why are you complaining? And StatsCan said that a millennial is as likely to own a house as a Gen Xer and it's only slightly less likely than a boomer. So it all evens out in the wash. Or does it? Or does it? 31% of Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck. 31% of Canadians say they don't earn enough to pay their bills. This is blowing up. Let me read some texts and I'll get to some calls. Evan, I earn, I make 100000 bucks a year. After child support and vehicle payment, I can't afford more than a junior one-bedroom apartment. It's demoralizing. I'm 40. Evan, younger generation doesn't want to do without. We scrape by to pay our mortgage. We lived very minimally. I love this topic, Evan. I'm 55 and I grew up poor. I went to law school. I'm doing very well now, but I was fortunate. Law school used to be 2,500 bucks a year. Now it's 25,000. It's so unfair how foreign investing and house flipping has changed the real estate market in the last 20 years. Actually, the facts say that foreign investing has marginal. It's not actually a big uh, percentage. They tried that in, in BC to cut that out. It didn't really make much of a difference. Unless we give her a house, her daughter will never be able to buy one, even if she earns six figures. I think if Paul, if she earns six figures, she'll be able to buy a house. Hi, Evan uh, Kay in Windsor. My dad had a good job, raised four kids in the 60s and 70s, but he also had side jobs so our family could have extras like camping vacations, takeout dinners. But I still wonder which generation is better off. I wish a financial expert could explain the difference now. Higher prices but lower interest rates versus lower costs in the past but higher interest rates. We do have more wants than needs now. Our kids were thrilled. As kids, we were thrilled to go McDonald's. Now it's normal to have extras. I'll read one more. Man, this is pouring in. I got so many calls too. We might have to continue. Hey, Ev, I'm 26. I make 130000 a year. I have 200000 saved. And I'm nowhere close to owning a home. Huh. I would love to know what boomers paid for their first home guaranteed. They didn't have to put more than 20000 down. Absolutely cannot stand when they call us young people entitled as I have to work three times as hard as you did. I'm not a boomer, by the way, but I appreciate you calling me that. Um, I'm 26 years old and I make 130 a year and you have 200,000. Say you're doing better than I did at 26. I can tell you that um, I, I you can't buy a house on 130 a year and you have 200,000 saved. I don't know where you live. I. I thought you could. Uh, you're surprising me. I'm not trying to doubt you, but you can. Uh, you can. Uh, you can call me back on that. This is amazing. Um, let me, let me get Lisa. Go for it. That guy who said he makes 130 and has 200 and can't afford it. I can attest to that. So I'm 52. 
I'm divorced. I have an excellent paying job. I make over a hundred thousand. I inherited over two hundred thousand, and I cannot afford squat in Mississauga. Nothing, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that condo fees are too high. But most of it has to do with mortgage rates. I can't afford it. I can't but, afford. But what do you mean mortgage mortgage rates? Sorry, I'm just asking. Mortgage rates are are like at historic lows. Are you saying that Sorry, you're carrying I didn't mean too mortgage rates? I meant the the whole like the cost of it. So if I was to have a, a five hundred or six hundred thousand, and I'm not looking at million dollar homes, I put in max seven fifty to finance five hundred and fifty thousand would cost me about twenty five hundred a month. Plus, some most condo fees in buildings are a thousand dollars a month, give or take. Plus, I have no car payment. I have to live. My, so, my so you're saying at a hundred, you have two hundred thousand dollar inheritance. You yep. have a hundred thousand dollar a year job, invested. and you don't own a condo. No, I can't afford it. This is what I'm telling you. My mortgage broker crunched the numbers. I have no debt. Crunched the numbers, and you know what was going to be left at the end of the day to live off of: food, gas, transportation. Two hundred bucks. That's it. So you're feeling so it. So your screener you're... asked, what's the solution? What are you doing for your children to change that? And I said, I think that one of the solutions is teaching children at a young age, not to save, but to invest. Dollar cost averaging, uh, buying low, selling high. You, could, you can contribute all the facts. Say you, you, if you start early, small amounts, by the time you, I mean, I'm not sure it's going to help you buy a house in the GTA, but it'll help you retire at least comfortably. I think and that's a great. Joking. I think that's a great solution. By the way, I think. And by the way, I think teaching uh, economic literacy, financial literacy, is if you we don't teach that in school, it's negligence now because it's costing society more. I really appreciate the call and good luck. Like I, this is great. I just want to read you a note from from a, a, a producer, um, uh, who Donnie, who, who you you will all know. Uh, when he, younger generations don't spend money wisely, they chase technology, they eat out too much. This drives me crazy. Cell phone bills often needed to stay competitive at work cost more than a thousand bucks. Our careers and jobs demand more for us from extra time. Education is more expensive. Employers um, are asking young people more. Um, it's not about the luxury of getting home. It's just a matter of trying to work way more to make ends meet. So, this is a really important issue. Uh, hi, Evan. We are retired and we're living off OAS and CPP and a small investment. Having sold our mortgage-free home and downside six years ago, we are managing. Okay, so there you go. Evan, small towns are expensive too. Housing prices have doubled, even if the price is less than in Toronto. By the way, a lot of people... Evan, why aren't more young people getting into trades or learning skills um, that they don't need to go to university for? These are really... Listen, folks, these are good questions. Uh, do I have time for, um, let me get to Michaela. Michaela, go for it. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm uh, awesome. I, what's what's I, your take? Yeah, my take is I'm not as, um, let, let's say, generous as the other callers. I think based on what I saw my parents sacrifice uh, to get their homes, I mean, we did nothing. We bought nothing extra. I think the majority of people today, whether you're young or old, you're not willing to do that. You don't want to be house poor, whereas my parents were absolutely prepared to do that and did it 
and on a janitor's salary and on a factory worker's salary. So how old are you? Like what? I'm just trying to get a sense. So your parents were like janitors. Uh, They're very much no one. No one uses the term working class, but that's really a very noble term, I think. But they were in that, uh, you know, everyone says middle class. I don't even know what that means anymore. But, you know, working class. You know, yes, my, my father-in-law, deli- you know, working, cl- like delivering food at night, second job to raise four kids. You know, my grandfather, we're going to sweatshop, working class. I get it. But, but, and what generation are you? Uh, I don't know what you mean by generation, but I'm 40 years old. So. Okay, so, so, and you're saying kids or younger people now just won't put this, put, I, cut, I, cut I'm a vein. Not, I'm, not say, I'm not pegging an age on it. I'm, I'm just saying in general, people today are not willing to do the sacrifices that, uh, previous generations have been willing to do it. It's, it's, I think it's as simple as that. I don't want to uh, paint just uh, a whole right. class of people with the same brush, right? I just don't think we're willing to do that. Huh. Okay, Michaela, I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I probably have 100 texts here. Folks, if, can you t- do you want to continue this conversation? Uh, because I do. I, I think we're on to something. I think this is the conversation. Uh, I know, Ben, you're, I got tons of phone calls here. I know Franco and Ben, there's lots. What I got to take a break, though. What I'll do is let me try to come back to this. I, we're going to pick this up. I think this affordability question is generational. I think there's a lot of judgment. I think there's a lot of anger. And I think there's a lot of practical knowledge we all need. There's a lot of slagging going on. So let, let's get at it. But I, I'm going to bring on another author. You know how I do this. I'm really into free speech. An author who's been told you can't read this book or you'll be fired. Next. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Lots coming up, but I always pay attention to uh, kids' book authors. Having published a couple kids' books uh, myself years ago with Penguin, The Adventures of Nathaniel McDaniel. And so, you know, look, I used to go to classes, and I always get letters from kids um, about the kids' books I wrote. And, I, you know, teaching kids and reading uh, to classes and getting letters from kids about their imagination is fantastic. And it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And then when I hear about another author who is banned from reading a book because the school board says you can't do it, I always think, why? Well, Jason Tharp has a book called It's Okay to Be a Unicorn. Okay. What's it about? Well, it's about a unicorn who hides his identity. But the Ohio school board said to Jason Tharp, you can't read this because this book could, and I'm quoting them, recruit kids to become gay, which, by the way, is not a thing. Don't recruit kids to become a gay. That is, that is not, that's not how sexuality works, but apparently in Ohio... The school board thinks it does. So we've invited Jason Tharp, the author of It's Okay to Be a Unicorn, to come on and talk about this. Hi, Jason. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm confused and, and, and <laughs> aggravated. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we're on the same page. <laughs> tell, tell us, first of all, about the book, and then we'll get to the reaction. What's the book about? Tell us the story of It's Okay to Be a Unicorn. Absolutely. Uh, well, the quick gist of the book is it's actually a book about me growing up in a small town of being kind of told that what I wanted to grow up to be wouldn't work, essentially, right? And But the, the book itself is about a, a unicorn named Cornelius J. Sparkle Steed who lives in a town called Huffington, where there's one that you can't be a unicorn. Um, and so he's become a hat maker, and he makes these wonderful hats that he hides his unicorn horn under. And the mayor has decided he's going to let Cornelius be the star of a, a big party they have called Palooza mm. to celebrate everything about being wonderful and horse-tastic. And throughout the book, he goes through this whole series of kind of like thinking about what people have always told him about unicorns. And Reality was it like he just wants people to like him because of like what he likes and you know and I think uh, what is being missed in this conversation is that the unicorn is the kid that's on crutches, the kid that stutters, the kid that you know feels you know overweight, different. all of these things. It's different. Like and it was this was book. Uh, was this book specifically about sexual orientation? Was it about not that it matters, but I'm just asking. Did you write it about? Hey, this is about the LGBTQ community or the kid that identifies as LGBTQ. Yeah, Q, or, or was it about kids that feel different? Uh, it was absolutely not about LGBT, although I am a huge ally. It is just the idea of like, you know, the same as you were talking in the beginning, traveling around to schools and stuff like that, I get asked lots of questions. And one that just kept coming up, and I try to address this from my own growing up, as a, you know, grow up to be a broken adult. How could I help a kid that's, you know, a little kid now? And it is that whole thing of, like, what do you do when you're different? Like, what do you do when you like something somebody else doesn't like? And all these different things. Mm. And so literally what I did was I had that idea. I sat down and I said, what kind of character can I create that will automatically take down the kid's guard and they'll love them right away? Well, what do they like? They love unicorns. They love color. Mm. Easy. That's, I can just, and that's kind of where it started. And the best part is a unicorn has all these different things about them that are you know, quote unquote flaws, but at the same time, everybody loves them. So there's a lot of elements about a unicorn that makes it kind of like the perfect character for a story like this. So then what happened? So now you've written other books. So, so folks, oh, yeah. so I'm speaking to a, a kids author, Jason Tharp, author of It's Okay to Be a Unicorn, among other books. This is a good book. This is about kids feeling different. There's no explicit stuff about gender or sexual orientation or anything. It's, it's, a, it's a unicorn book. What does the Ohio school board say? What happens? What's the le- what do they say in their letter? So what happened was I you know I dropped my my son off for school. We had a two hour delay here and uh, chopped him off and I get a phone call the day before the actual event. Now mind you, they had the all the info and my link, everything to check out all my books um, about six to eight weeks prior to this. So it was the day before the the uh, event, and I, the, I get a call from the principal, and it was very clear that he was not wanting to have this conversation it definitely was not coming from him and it was like basically the word from the top is they want you to not read the unicorn book and not address anything with the unicorn book and i'm like and i and he kind of like was i was like well why and he stammered and i could tell he was nervous and it uncomfortable and i just asked straight up i said does somebody think i made a gay book and he said yeah and i took into account all that's happening right now and i swear i kind of drew a straight line to and and I said, how many people? And he's like, it's one parent. And confusion went over even more. Right. So we're doing this for one parent. And then so I sat in my car and did my whole school presentation. 
basically, to kind of let them know that I don't actually even talk about the book. I read it to the preschool kids through first grade. The other kids, I don't read or address the book. And then I talk to them about how I made the book, where it came from, and then I read the book and I teach them how to draw the character right. because I was that kid at six that wanted to do what I do now. And, um, and then I offered the alternative. I'll read It's Okay to Smell Good, and it's a skunk book, No Unicorns and Rainbows. And he said, well, I'll have to take and run that up the flagpole, basically. And about half hour later, I get an email that says, Central Office would prefer you not to read that book as well. So I called, and I said, am I reading this right? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he, they felt, they felt they meaning the school board and the superintendent, felt that um, it could also be tr- uh, twisted and open a can of worms. <laughs> What's the can you know, of like these are crazy? So like like who said this? Like I can't even believe. It. I mean, like again, I, I mean I know this is all much more politicized in the U.S. Who did someone actually say or a letter quote recruit kids to become gay? Was that a thing? That was what I was told was said by this parent in the office, um, and basically also what I saw from screenshots and things that people had sent me of what this person had said. So what do you do? Like Jason, so what do you do? I'm speaking to Jason Tharp. He's the author of it's okay (laughs) to be a unicorn. Like you're the author. Do you fight this? Do you accept this? Like what, what does this tell us? You know, I think what it, you know, I think what I, what I've kind of come to terms with as far as me personally is that I went to the school anyway. I was like, regardless of this, the kids were built up. I'm going to the school. Um, is that what happens in our world right now is an adult will put an uneducated, insecure filter on something as low as a book. When a kid only sees unicorns, rainbows, and magic, and somebody standing in front of them kind of pouring their heart out and saying, like, hey, I was you one time. I had a huge dream. Here's some ideas of what helped me get there. And then I have a real-life example here to share with you. And I think when we start to take creativity or creative outlets away from our children – that's where we start to have the problem. Because could you imagine a future math person that's not you know, creative or scientist or doctor? Creativity is part of the lifeline because it helps these kids be seen. Um, and I think that is what is happening, at least for me, is the struggle. And what I continue to kind of defend is this idea that, like, I was that invisible kid. <laughs> I'm a, an adult now. Like, I am fighting for that invisible kid. I that invisible kid to be seen so, so because Jason, it was those books. Yeah, sorry. No, no, I got to take a break, but I want to put, yeah. I want my callers, like we're across the country here in Canada. I know you're in the States. Yeah. You want to stick around and do some calls and, t- and talk more about this? Are you cool with that? Yeah. yeah Jason sure. Tharp is the author of It's Okay to Be a Unicorn, okay? It's a kid's book. And it was banned. He was told you can't read it because parents complain. Let's talk about what to read to our kids. And Jason's going to stay on the line. We're all going to weigh in on this now. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. The battlefront uh, on education always is, happens with kids' books, and there's authors out there, and we've, we've had this before, where, oh, you can't read this book. You can't have your kids. Your, your kids will be badly influenced by this book. And I'm always on the alert for this stuff, uh, not only because I'm a father of two kids, and my wife and I are, are always on the lookout, you know, like... I believe in freedom of expression, and I don't believe you have to protect your kids. Like, 
you know, nowadays everything, oh, we better protect them. You know, watch Bambi. The mother dies. There's always a death in the old Disney stuff. What's wrong? And what, what do you, I know in Florida where there's a don't say gay law, people, oh, we shouldn't talk about that with kids. Like, what happens with kids who have two moms or two dads or a single parent or like, what is the problem with reality? And, and I look, I wrote two kids books for Penguin, The Adventures of Nathaniel McDaniel, and I've been to countless kids classes and taken questions from kids. And guess what, folks? Kids don't impose their political agendas on the classroom. They're curious. They want to learn about things. There's no, quote, recruiting. But Jason Tharp is the author of It's Okay to Be a Unicorn. He's written many books, and he's in Ohio, and he was told, oh, you can't read that because a parent thinks you're going to, quote, recruit kids to become gay, which is, by the way, not a thing. But apparently some parent thinks it is, and it's enough to keep Jason out of the class, and, and, and we better censor that book. And Jason's good enough to join us. And, and I'm going to open up the calls, one 855 1-855-633-1010, or 71010, to comment on, on what you should read to kids. And, and just, Jason, I've got a couple texts as I wait for some calls. And the, the, yeah. Evan, this is insane. I'm so getting this book for my grandchildren. Um, <laughs> why do we need to change the whole world for one effing person? I don't know what this means, but this is interesting, right? Change the yeah. like if you personally feel that it's possible to be convinced to be gay, I got some troubling news for you, said Don. But there's a lot of people. What kind of reaction, Jason, did you get? Because you know, you'd think people would say, you know what, why is the school board so out of line here, so censoring? And yet there's a lot of people that say this is exactly the kind of book we should not have and we need to we need to vet books more closely. What what kind of reaction have you had? I've actually had a few uh with really negative stuff, right? I've, I've been called lots of things, obviously, over this last week from some people that are projecting their insecurities, right? On is that right? Is that right? Oh, have, yeah. you been, have you been targeted? Um, I've had, yeah, I've had some pretty interesting uh, messages from some people, and uh, you're, you just kind of leave you scratching your head, and, and you know, um, I'm a firm believer in don't engage your critics. Like I can't, I can't control what this person wants to project on a unicorn book. I mean, they have bigger issues. I always like to think therapies for adults, you know, like let's let the kids have the magic of like this story. Um, but for the most part, I mean, definitely in this district, um, the superintendent and school board, I think underestimated the, the outreach that their parents would have um, because I have gotten so many emails of like, you know, we, they don't, they don't speak for us. Uh, so a lot of that, which is really as an author of this type of thing, obviously this was not my plan. You know, <laughs> that Wednesday I woke up thinking it was going to be a normal day. Right. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a really great outreach of support, um, and then a handful here or there people that you know they think I'm gay because I wrote this, or they think that you know I've had been accused of what kind of man would want a kid to come sit on their lap and read to him. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So, it's just so, like so what do you that... think of this though? Like I got a call on speaking <laughs> to Jason who says, Evan, does it go both ways? For example, I w- I'm not allowed. I want to read to kill a mockingbird this year. Uh, some mm-hmm. schools are banning it. Uh, there are lots of books that are no longer being read because of racial stereotypes or others. Does it work that way as well? Jason, what's your, re- what's your response to that? I mean, don't we think that we learn from books? I mean, it's part of our culture and part of our history and different things like this. I think that books, you know, certainly open up our world to, like, possibilities, right? And I think that's why 
I would think if I talked to lined up 20 authors and talked to them, they're writing to what could inspire somebody to do. So even taking books back that are, are, you know, quote unquote wrong by today's standards, like, you know, why take those away and why not show like, this is what it used to be like, look how far we've come instead of reflecting back. Mm. You know, I think that it is part of our world. Like it is part of it. And it's a way to measure, right? I mean, because humans, we kind of learn by mistakes, correct? Like we, we, we fail and we get back up and we pick up where we left, left off. But, you know, um, creativity, it, it reaches people in different ways. It, you know, I used to get lost in Shel Silverstein books because, like, I felt like he was reading to me. Like, I felt like I could be seen. Right. You know, Sid Hoff books when I was a kid, like, I felt like, holy cow, like, the first time I read this book called Stanley about a caveman that wanted to paint while everybody else wanted to go club out, you know, dinosaurs. I remember being a kid thinking, like, this guy's my hero. Like, he's a friend. He didn't know me. Like, I'd never met him. But I felt like they kind of, like, gave me, like, a, a, a part of, like, a little kid that was lost said, like, hey, we see you. Right. You know, and, and in a lot of ways that stuff changes your life and saves your life. And, you know, I think we project our own insecurities onto so many things. But the truth is we're all struggling. We all just want to be good humans. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. Uh, and look, there are agendas. And, and I would just say this, and, I'm, and then, Michael, I'm going to take your call. Um, look, school boards have to make choices because there's a scarce, scarcity creates choices. You can't read every book. So on any agenda, you have to decide what books and books are going to change. The curriculum changes. Demographics change. Culture changes. So these debates are, are not going. You can't always teach the same, you know, 50 books because new books are being written. And so right. there's going to be choices, but that's OK. You know, right. we can't always choose the same books and there's going to be debates. But there is a line where choice becomes censorship. Uh, Michael, you're on the line. What's up? Good afternoon. I, oh, I think you've you've stated it very well. Uh, I was a uh, I am a, a teacher who isn't allowed to read To Kill a Mockingbird to my class this year because one parent felt that uh, the language would be too upsetting for their child, and so I was censored. And what did you do about it, Michael? What, what, what was your view on that? I said my view clearly to my principal, uh, but she did not support me. Uh, she supported the parent. So technically the TDSB is not banning books, but they are going around it another way. Just when your administrator says, please don't do that book, the parent will be too upset. I had no recourse. Right. Do you understand? Like, I'm intrigued by that. Um, like, you know, when we were talking about Jason's book about a unicorn, they're projecting an interpretation on it. To Kill a Mockingbird uses the N-word, and that's different. That can be super triggering. I, I, I grew up, I read that book, I loved that book, my kids read that book. I understand, though, why somebody might say, well, you know, you're not black. Well, it's it's my, more my triggering. To that, my argument to that, Evan, would be what's triggering to you may not be triggering to somebody else. And how do you know what exactly you're going to trigger. You could look at it that way and just try and protect the child, or as your your uh, author said, you know, you can teach it from a historical perspective and explain how far right. we've come and that it, it is a word. If, that, if you're going to melt over the word, then maybe that's what the parent's teaching them. But if you're going to teach resilience, that's a different way of looking at it. Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I'm going to leave that. Uh, thanks for the call, Michael, by the way. I think teachers are on the front line of this. I think parents are on the front line, Jason. How do they navigate these different things where 
each parent may have a different issue. Like, you know, it's one thing to say, I, you know, that's a word that's a racist view. It's another view that says I want to ban sort of, you know, a certain sexuality or gender identification um, for reasons of which is a human rights issue, which I think is totally different than a than a historic context reason. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that you it's the head scratcher, right? Is like how like what makes you put your flag down in something like this? Like it, it just it doesn't make sense when especially when the thing doesn't address it. I mean, I could understand a guess if like there was some sort of like, you know, I address that directly. But, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I haven't really <laughs> processed that reasoning yet i can't understand because here's the catch of it like one of the things to understand i live 12 miles from this school right like this person could have messaged me i would have went and had coffee and explained i would have bought my sketches i would have brought all of everything that i formed this book together the same with the school board you know they their their issue was that they needed to they could have resolved this like yeah God, it's a thirty-two right? page kids book. Like it takes me five minutes to read it. Like, yeah. well, um, how long do you have to vet it? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, listen, Jason. First of all, I really appreciate you you joining us, uh, Jason Tharp. He's the author of "It's Okay to Be a Unicorn." By the way, it is. Jason, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, uh, we got lots more on the Evan Solomon Show. Stay with us. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Hey, welcome back to the program. Do you remember when the on the um, Canadian government, the Trudeau government, promised to resettle forty thousand refugees from Afghanistan? Well, guess what? We've barely got eleven thousand, ten thousand six hundred. And remember that many of them, many Afghans, were former. Employees of the Canadian government, they were only there to, I don't know, save lives. They were interpreters during the war. They worked for Canada. These are Afghans who supported Canada's military and diplomatic mission. And as Bob Fife reported first in the Globe and Mail, and I always credit whoever broke the story. This is from our good friend Bob Fife, the bureau chief at the Globe and Mail. Here's the headline. Canadian Veterans Group gives up Afghan refugee efforts, citing burnout and Ottawa's bureaucratic roadblocks. Well, Tim Laidler is the president of the Veterans Transition Network. You've heard from them before. They're they're still supporting Afghans, but they can't accept donations because of weighty here. And Tim Tim joins us now. Tim Laidler, first of all, thanks for your service, Tim, and and I, I I'm glad to connect again. Um, to, to give us a sense of what's going on here and, and the obstacles you're facing and why uh, your organization is having to, uh, the Veterans Transition Network, having to basically transition its work. Yeah, it's um, it's been a, you know, a harrowing journey since the, the fall of the Afghan government in August. Um, you know, we're incredibly proud that we've, we've played a direct role in helping over 2,000 of those Afghans get here to Canada by providing safe houses and, and convoys out of the country back in the fall. Um, but it, it's an incredibly challenging uh, project now, what happens next here. Now, now that the Taliban have controlled the country, uh, Canada has sanctions preventing NGOs like ours from um, spending money in Afghanistan. 
And uh, the Afghans themselves have a huge amount of paperwork they need to complete outside of Afghanistan in order to come to Canada. This is the conundrum, right? The Canadian government says, OK, can't spend that money in Afghanistan because that would support the Taliban. But cash is king there. You need money to get people out. Exactly. You need money to buy a passport right now. And, and that's probably going to look like a bribe. And that's something that we can't we can't fund as a charity. And, and that's why we wanted to be clear with our donors. Um, and, and that's why we did send out uh, an update to all of our donors and, and the people who have helped the thousands of people get out is that we, we don't want to mislead them and let them and take that money knowing we can't spend it directly in Afghanistan. What we can do and what we are going to continue doing, though, is supporting with migration and giving people information and helping let them know that, yeah, you're going to need a passport, you're going to need a visa to a third country, and that's how you're going to get your family here to Canada. Right. But Tim, I'm speaking to Tim Laidler, the president of the Veterans Transition Network, trying to get Afghan interpreters and their families who helped Canada out of Afghanistan, and they'd raised about $3.6 million to rescue over 2,000 Afghans. Um, and they have rescued over 2,000 Afghans since uh, August 2021. But But... Here's the thing that we can do. Like, I understand what we can't do. The Taliban, are there roadblocks under the top? Yes, I understand that. I think all listeners understand that. But there are roadblocks from the Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. There are roadblocks that our governments put on for the application process. And to get here, that seemed to be outrageous. Can you tell us what they are? Sure. Um, it, it's, it, 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 maybe, yeah, it seems outrageous, but it, it's... Again, it's pretty complicated. The, the, when we closed the Canadian embassy in Afghanistan, that was a game changer. Right? That if refugees come from any other country, for the most part, they have a Canadian consulate where people can go and finalize their paperwork. That no longer exists in Afghanistan, and that was closed, you know, before the fall of the Afghan government last summer. So, without the Canadian consular support for these Afghan refugees, they have to go to a Pakistan or another third country. And if you look at Pakistan, there's already 1.4 million Afghan refugees in Pakistan. So they're not keen to let any more Afghan refugees come in, even if they're saying, well, we're going to go onward to Canada. Pakistan says, well, what happens if you don't go onward to Canada? You're going to become a burden in our system. And that is one of the major roadblocks. And that's why one of our calls to action is we need to reopen Canadian consular presence in Afghanistan quicker than people would have maybe thought. So what happens? Like, 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 can you give us a sense of who's stuck there? What, what people who are desperately trying to get out, they've been, they've been trying to get their paperwork done. You've been working with them. Like, what's happening to them? Are they being targeted by the Taliban? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're being targeted. They're being chastised. You know, many of the families got separated. So there's, you know, for example, we have, you know, an interpreter and his immediate family have made it out, but one of his brothers is stuck there with his family. And on social media or whatever, they figured out that the one brother made a doubt and the Taliban are knocking on the door of the other brother saying, I thought you were going to Canada. I thought they said they were going to take your extended family. Why the Canadians haven't helped you? You should, you know, this is a sort of harassment they've been getting. And um, there's been, you know, much worse stories than that, obviously. But I've heard uh, people, I mean, there's people that wanted to leave that have been killed. That's, that's what we've heard reports of. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, th- there's been people killed. Uh, there's been, I think what we've said is there's been um, small level targeting, you know, set, settling of scores. Uh, a person at Taliban knows somebody else worked for the coalition and they've taken it upon themselves to go over and, and do it. We haven't seen the widespread coordinated um, at, 
targeting, which is, which is a good thing. Uh, we're hoping that that doesn't become the case, but there is a real risk at any moment that the Taliban loses patience or gets frustrated and decides to uh, take revenge. So now what? Like, like what do you do now? How, how, how do we help these people? So we've we just got to be honest with them. You know, we've heard from different people in government this is going to take years now. And, and you know, the VTN stepped into the space in a crisis, and we're, we're proud to have done that. And, and we helped, you know, when we could, you know, get thousands out. And at this point now, the burden is falling on the shoulders of the individual Afghans. They have to get through their paperwork. They now have to get the proper, proper travel documents in the form of a visa and a passport to a third country. And the best thing that we're going to keep doing, and, and that's what we did say, is the only thing that's changing in the, in the Veterans Transition Network's mission in Afghanistan right now is that we're not accepting donations in May. We're going to continue with this migration support and help give people the best information for them to get to third countries to finish off their, their applications to come to Canada. But the idea that you know thousands of Afghans are going to get out in the next couple of months can't happen unless we reopen the consulate. I got to tell you, it's it's just heartbreaking. And and what I just want people to realize what Tim Laidler and and the team at Veterans Transition Network have been doing, trying to save people's lives from living under the Taliban. People, frankly, who we have a we have a, a responsibility to and a connection with, and it's powerful. And you, you know, I know people say, well, we can't open a consulate. Uh, you know, we got to shut down our pull our embassies and shut. If you do that, you strand people. You have no eyes and ears on the ground. And, it, and, you know, I always say it's the same with countries like Iran or Russia or, you know, embassies are there not for the countries you like, but they're there sometimes for the countries you don't like and the government, because you've got to help people. And, and Tim knows this better than anyone. Uh, Tim Laidler, um, I really appreciate you raising awareness, president of the Veterans Transition Network. I know your, your, your folks are burned out. Uh, it's exhausted and frustrating. But, man, I just think about the Afghans you've helped and those you, you want to help. And I really appreciate and admire the work you do, sir. Thanks so much, Evan. Yeah, thank you. And uh, shout out to Bob Fife of the Globe for, for raising this issue again. Tim, thanks. Oh, man. I hope the Canadian government's listening. Like, these are people on the ground. It matters. It matters. If we're really going to resettle 40,000 refugees from Afghanistan, you got to open a consulate. All right, coming up. Is this good news? Well, it's painful for the survivors of the, of, of the, of a massacre. The Sandy Hook Massacre, remember 20 kids killed? Well, InfoWars, remember the guy, Alex Jones? Well, guess what? Filed for bankruptcy protection over the defamation lawsuits. What does it mean? Is he going to protect himself and reemerge? Or is this the end of one of the most destructive people in the media landscape? A guy that literally told the parents of children who were murdered at Sandy Hook that it was a hoax. Imagine your child's murdered and this guy has the audacity, the vulgarity to say it was a fake. Now now he's pretending to apologize after profiting off the death of children. We'll talk about that next. You don't want to miss it. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. 
This is The Evan Solomon Show. It's hard to trust anything about Alex Jones, who filed his, he of infamous InfoWars fame, who filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy with three of its websites. Remember Alex Jones? Remember him? You probably do, sadly. This is the guy that was sued by the families of Sandy Hook. Do you remember Sandy Hook? Sandy Hook Elementary School where 20 kids gunned down. and Oh, oh he said it was a, a fake. He said it was all actors. Here's a guy that probably is hiding millions and millions of dollars, but now he's declared bankruptcy. Is he doing it to avoid paying the families? Let me bring on someone who follows this stuff to, to really dig into this. Our pal Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, who joins me now. Um, I thought it was a good day in the world when a guy who is profiting off the murder of children um, is filing for bankruptcy, Jason. But maybe it's just another hoax by this guy. What's your? Can you can you tell us a bit about what happened here and what has forced Infowars uh, conspiracy theorist Alec Jones into uh, Chapter Eleven? Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me, uh, first off. But uh, Alex Jones got in quite a bit of trouble, like you said, uh, a few years ago. And after that shooting, he sort of mused, not just, I shouldn't say mused, you know, aggressively yeah. argued and committedly put forward the notion that um, Sandy Hook didn't really happen. It was what he called crisis actors. It was all staged by the Obama administration, as it was at that point, um, to confiscate weapons from law-abiding Americans, right? This was just another government plot to uh, enable the sort of totalitarian regime that Alex Jones has been warning is right around the corner ever since he got his start on local radio in Texas in the 1990s. And he did so with incredibly little concern for the uh, trauma of those families, for the safety of the people who uh, resided in that community. And he basically unleashed his flying monkeys onto this town and onto those families, onto those children who survived. Just, they I, were just want, I just want people to yeah. know, there were mm-hmm. 20 kids who were slaughtered between six and seven. The mm-hmm. killer, whose name I won't say... Killed 26 people, okay, six adults, but but so so it's terrible enough. It's mass murder of adults, but 20 kids were six and seven, and Alex Jones profited by pretending it didn't happen by by traumatizing these families. It is, I can't think of a more dis. I don't, there's not a word for how disgusting this is, but I just wanted I just I just wanted to pause yeah. so we we just realize. Mm-hmm. And this is 2012, Sandy Hook Elementary School. You know, 20 kids are gunned down, six and seven-year-old kids and, and six adults. And this guy made a living profiting off it. I just want to make sure we don't lose sight of it. And, and he would do this time and time again, whether it's 9-11 insinuating it was George Bush who planned it all, whether it was the Parkland High School shooting where he started alleging that the students who survived and advocated for better gun control were all in on it, right? You know, this is something he does repeatedly this is his entire ethos is to suggest that every bad thing that, ha- that happens is a government plot to enable this one world socialist government but parkland was maybe the height of that really grotesque campaign and it, it did unleash his followers to target and harass and threaten yeah. 
the parents of the students who died, the students who survived, the teachers, the people, the the police officers in that community, the conspiracy theorists who uh, hang on Alex Jones's every word, accused them of being part of this of this government plot. And so the families fought back as they were well within their rights to do. They filed a defamation suit against Alex Jones and Infowars. And Alex Jones has pulled every trick in the book to try and avoid legal liability there. At one point, his lawyers, I, I believe his wife, heavily suggested that everything he does is sort of an act. It is, um, you know, they imply that he doesn't actually believe it. It's all sort of theatrics and therefore it's kind of protected by free speech. Um, he skipped depositions. He was actually fined by the court for, for, for skipping hearings in that court case. And ultimately he lost. And he and uh, Infowars, I don't have the number in front of you, but are, are on the hook for, for millions and millions of dollars in damages. And so just in the past day, his, his organization, Infowars, um, filed in court saying that he has less than $50,000 in assets and somewhere between $1 million and $10 million U.S. in liabilities, mostly from this court proceeding. Now, you kind of asked me off the top, is this just another hoax? It may well be. Uh, I can tell you that, uh, that Infowars is a high earning organization. It has a dedicated base of people who give money. It has a, uh, a, you know, a long-standing business of selling totally junk supplements, of advertising services to people who are paranoid and fearful of the government. Um, it has a dedicated revenue stream. It is an expensive operation, no doubt, but I would remain incredibly skeptical of the claim that they have just under $50,000 in assets. And, and and the allegation from the families, as I speak to Justin Ling, uh, investigative reporter, Justin, is that Alex Jones has squirreled away like $18 million or mm-hmm. more in shell companies to avoid paying them and that he's actually declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which allows him to restructure, to actually avoid paying the families anything. In other words, I'm going to try to burn you again. Yeah, I, 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 it's actually quite funny in the last, oh, I shouldn't say funny, it's, it's quite horrid, but in the last number of days, um, because I unfortunately spent too much time on, on his website, um, I started noticing a new advertiser for InfoWars, and it is a tax shelter business. It is a business that um, advertises hiding your money away from the government. And you always have to kind of look at any advertiser on Infowars with a level of skepticism because it is not a reputable business. Anybody who's choosing to advertise, you know, clearly has a screw loose. And this tax business uh, has actually been named in a RICO, in a racketeering lawsuit, alleging using deceptive and in some cases harassing practices to bully people into uh, into signing up with their tax business. And and the the, the supposed tax attorney who who runs. The business is not an attorney at all and has been overstating his credentials as alleged by this lawsuit. So it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest to know that Alex Jones um, may be using some of his own services or others like right. it, or so, you know, using some of the services that advertise with him or others like it in order to, to hide some of that money from these, from these families. He's known for quite some time that he's going to lose this case. Um, he's known for quite some time that his organization will be on the hook for millions. It would, nothing would surprise me less than to know that he has um, used some clever accounting practices to shield that money. Right. He has done so. Uh, 
um, to avoid, uh, in effect, censorship. He has started opening up um, similar websites to InfoWars that publish all the same content to go around Google's efforts to uh, block his website from Google searches. So is, uh, it, but is this the end of news. the brand InfoWars? That's what I wonder. Is it, have, the, have finally the Sandy Hook parents who have been through so much hell... Have they ended InfoWars, or is he going to transmogrify, reassert, reemerge as as another dangerous conspiracy theory, theorist, uh, just with another name? I, I think you'll see him. He's used the InfoWars moniker since he was fired from his radio station in 1999 uh, for making outlandish claims and trying to um, basically rehabilitate the, the Waco cult compound in Texas. So he's been using InfoWars for quite some time. But in the last number of years, you've seen him open up new websites. He has one called News Wars. Um, he has rebranded his kind of video streaming site as Banned Video. I suspect you'll see him latch on to another one of those uh, those names and, and, and kind of reimagine it himself. But at the same time, he's also shameless. It would not surprise me at all to see him, um, you know, declare bankruptcy, uh, liquidate the rest of the organization, and then just reincorporate under a slightly right. different name, but continue using Infowars. He, he has very little shame, and and he's never faced real consequences for these sort of actions in the past. So it wouldn't surprise me to learn that he'll try to do the same thing this time around. And I always just think of those parents. 20, 20 kids and six adults, and this guy's running around, and the story's not about their kids, and the story's not about their recovery, and the story's not about gun violence, and the story's about Alex Jones. And that's the, that's the weird, horrible uh, world we're living in. Uh, Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist. Um, hey, my friend, thank you. I always appreciate your, your views on this. You, you follow this more closely than anyone. I appreciate it. Thanks, Evan. That is Justin Ling. Um, so, you know, Tim Powers, are, uh, who, who's going to join us on Wednesday on The War Room? He's running the Boston Marathon today. But Boston Marathon has banned runners from Russia and Belarus. Do you think that's the right thing to do? Next. Sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. So our friend Tim Powers is running the Boston Marathon today. 28,000 runners in the Boston Marathon. And I don't know if you've ever run a marathon. I think I've run four or five. Uh, I love the experience, although it's very painful. Um, I've run a lot with Timmy. Uh, I'm very proud of him that he's doing the Boston. I have never, I missed my qualification for Boston by about uh, four or five minutes last time. Because it's like 325 or 330 to qualify for me. And that's fast. <laughs> but anyway, Timmy's in there. And and Boston's a legendary uh, race. If you run it, I've run uh, the London Marathon in England, which is great. And the Ottawa Marathon a bunch of times. This is a great thing. And the Boston Marathon Association said that athletes from Russia and Belarus who are, uh, if you're residing in either country, you can't come. So, so if you're coming from Russia or Belarus, you can't come to the oldest annual marathon. You're banned. And I want to... No, if you agree with that, one 833 one or 7-10-10. Should, sporting, should, should Russians and Belarusians be banned from things like marathons? These are not 
You know, these are not, they're not running for Russia. Like so many around the world, said the Boston um, Marathon Association CEO Tom Grilk, we are horrified and outraged by what we've seen and learned from reporting in Ukraine. We believe that running is a global sport, and as such, we must do what we can to show our support for the people of Ukraine. So the Boston Marathon won't recognize affiliation or flags of Russia and Belarus. That's it. They'll refund your fees, but if you're Ukrainian, by the way, and you're registered, you get a refund and you can defer for obvious reasons. What do you think of that? Uh, Nick, you've run, have, you run, have you run Boston, Nick? Yeah, I ran the Boston Marathon in 1982, and I finished 19th overall. I was a world-class runner, and uh, I ran all over the world. And I'll be honest with you, uh, it, it, it needs to stop. This political thing about, uh, okay, whatever happens with uh, Russia and, uh, and uh, Putin and uh, Ukraine, that's a different story. But, you know, the athletes have to train. And these tra- it takes four to six months to train for this if you're a really elite runner. And, you know, this is crazy. I think this is... Not, not, you know, not Nick. Nick, can I ask you something? How? How? What was your time, by the way? Uh, my time was two nineteen twenty-seven. You ran two nineteen. Wow, twenty-seven. That yeah. is a fast time in nineteen. What year? Yeah, I was training around a hundred. Uh, my coach was Bill Squire. He, tra- he trained Bill Rogers and uh, Bruno Salazar, the world record holder. What, what year? Now, now, did you ever run into a guy named Mike McGowan? Are you Canadian? Uh, yeah, I'm out with Cal- yeah, uh Well, I'm American, and I, I'm living in, in Canada now. But uh, good for you! Wow. Uh, okay. I, I so, so, so I know McAllen. I know McAllen. Yes. Nick. And uh, well, yes, that, go ahead, sorry. That's great. Well, okay. First of all, so you think they shouldn't be banned? By the way, thanks for calling in. Uh, I appreciate that. And by the way, two nineteen is world class time. Um, wow, that is impressive. Patrick, you're on the line. You think it's right to ban runners from Russia and Belarus? Well, it's a tricky question, but I don't really think that uh, we need to get into that. I think we need to keep on talking to Russian people and Belarus people. And, and uh, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily each one of them that is responsible for what's going on. And how are we going to be able to eventually move forward in the long run and try and make this whole thing better if we just shut them out, don't talk to them at all? Yeah, I appreciate it. It is a tricky, tricky thing. I thank you. And and I've talked to 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 a lot of people on the show, uh, the TSN great reporter Rick Westhead about should should for example all Russian hockey players be banned from the NHL? A lot of leagues are doing that. No players, even if those players, no players, Russian players in soccer, no Russian players in tennis, no Russian players in hockey. Uh, is that right? I mean, I'm, it's yeah. tricky, right? It's a tricky thing, and I appreciate the call. Um, because, because, go ahead. How, how far do we go? Like, how far do we take it? You know, and if, it's, if we're trying to build a global community, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like if your kid, if your kid responds to you putting a rule in place by damaging themselves or damaging somebody else, do you kick your kid out of the house or do you try and work with that kid and try and do something? And, uh, I don't know. It is tricky and it's a great question, but I really think that uh, taking it into that sporting world, uh, I don't see where it's really productive. 
Yeah, I'll tell you, I appreciate the call. Here's what I think. Um, first of all, taking it to the sporting world. Sports is politics. So, for example, do I think that the Olympics should have been in Beijing or do I or or, or uh, Russia? No, because, you know, Putin has openly cheated when when the Olympics were in Sochi. We know that um, if you're committing an act of war, no, because they're using it as propaganda. We knew it was happening in China with the Uyghurs. Now, I think. Countries have to decide whether they're going to use athletes as their pawns to appear like they're doing something so they don't have to take more serious economic action with consequences. So athletes are often used. But banning a runner because they're from Russia. Well, how does the Boston Marathon Association, how are they supposed to send a message to a country that has been invading another country and slaughtering people? And is that the price that people have to pay? It's very tricky. hundred percent, Evan. Of course, they should be banned. Evan, hundred percent, they should be banned. Evan, yes, absolutely, agree with the marathon to to do not let Russian runners run. We need to make their citizens hurt so they put pressure on their government. Let me just talk about that. You know, when you say put pressure on the government, you can put pressure on this government here. It's easy to say. You can go march against Justin Trudeau. Nothing happens. In fact, your speech is prepared. And I don't want to hear about truckers. Oh, they were. The truckers had three weeks here before not anything happened. You know, this notion that, oh, we, they were, you know, Justin Trudeau was like a tyrant. Three weeks I was there. It's not Russia. It's vulgar to compare it. There are people who stand for five minutes and they say one thing about Vladimir Putin. They're in jail. They're disappeared. So there's no comparison here. So t- telling Russians, hey, stand up to your government is like you should go to prison for that. You might be killed for that. Because that's what happens. So let's, it's not a cheap thing to to go tell a Russian to stand up against Vladimir Putin. Because it's dangerous and it takes bravery and we shouldn't take that lightly either. I'm with the Boston officials, Evan. If the Russians have a problem with this, think how the Ukrainians would feel. And by the way, I agree with that. Like you have to take a stand. I feel bad that it's on these runners' backs. Evan, uh, John O'Neill here, retired Air Force fighter pilot. Yes, we need to be in the athlete, ban the athletes because that sends a message. Those athletes will go. We can't attend to these events because our president is running a terrible war. Th- that, that may be right. Look, we, we have sanctions. We have to sanction Russia and exclude Russia. They cannot, they don't get the luxury of participating in a world when they are com- committing what the defense minister told me on the weekend is a genocide. I feel bad that it's on the backs of those Russians. But that is going to be the price of this war. That is going to be the price of this war. Keep listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm Evan Solomon. I'll see you on Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV.